the National Archives podcast series, Rawdon Brown and the Brown Archive in the National Archives, presented by Dr. John Law. In November 2001, the National Archives, uh, thanks largely to Elizabeth Hallam Smith, hosted a conference on Rawdon Brown and Venice which I organized with my close colleague, Professor Ralph Griffiths. A follow-up event was held in Venice itself, and in 2005, the papers, mostly from the National Archive Conference, were published under the title, Rawdon Brown and the Anglo-Venetian Relationship. The, this collection was introduced by John Julius Norwich and we dedicated it to Lady Frances Clark, both champions of the Venetian heritage. Two of the chapters by Ralph Griffiths and Shane Mitchell deal explicitly with Brown's employment by the Master of the Rolls from May 1862 to calendar material in Venice and northeastern Italy relating to Britain. And uh, with, uh, this has left a considerable archive of material, which I have called the Brown Archive, in the National Archives to this day. My own interest in Rawdon Brown stems in part from my work on late medieval Venetian history and also in part from a growing interest in the pioneering work of writers, historians, and historians in what you might call the long 19th century on the study of medieval and Renaissance Italy. And uh, you may be interested to know that there's going to be a major conference on this subject in the National Gallery and the Wallace Collection on the 1st and 2nd of March uh, uh, this year. Uh, followed up by uh, uh, a, a conference in Venice in November, looking at the interest taken and discovery of the early Italian Renaissance in terms of literature, the fine arts, and history. Now, today, I'd like to say something about Brown's career, his character, his connections and interests, and then, by way of conclusion, say something about the riches of material contained in the series PRO 30 stroke 25 and PRO 31 stroke 4. The Brown Archive that's held here. Now, Rawdon Lubbock Brown was born in 1806 in London. He briefly attended Charterhouse School between 1820 and 1821 and he arrived in Venice in 1833. The circumstances of his early life and the reasons for his ending up in Venice, where he stayed virtually without a break until his death in 1883, are unclear. And it's also unclear how he acquired a fluency in Latin, French, Italian, Spanish, and probably German. He does not seem to have been drawn to Italy by the Roman Catholicism of the country. In his work and correspondence, he rarely refers to religious issues, 
but occasionally is dismissive of Romish beliefs. And he wished to be, always wished to be buried in the Protestant cemetery on the Lido in Venice, a long-planned uh, ambition which was not, in fact, fulfilled. Nor was he sympathetic to the cause of Italian unity. Rodden Brown was politically very conservative. During the siege of Venice, 1848-49, he took up position in a tree to get a better view of the Austrian bombardment of the city, and his comments on the siege betray no regret that the Austrians had won. And throughout his correspondence, he maintains uh, disillusionment with the, quote, new Italy. Family tradition and remarks of his confidant, Effie Ruskin, whom he met in 1849, may hint at a family row or some personal disgrace or disappointment, which might have explained, might explain his, uh, his long residence in Venice. And this may, might, might be confirmed by the relatively scant references to relatives in his correspondence. And as I say, by the fact that he was resident in Venice virtually without a break from 1833 to 1883. It might also be confirmed by the reasons that Brown gave himself, gave him himself for his settling in Venice to an American writer, Charles Eliot Norton, uh, um, comments that he made to others. He, he claimed that he had come to the city haunted by lines from Shakespeare's Richard II to look for the grave of Thomas Mowbray, the banished Duke of Norfolk, who had died in Venice in 1399. Now, Edward Keane, the actor and dramatist, put on extremely successful productions of Richard II between 1815 and 1828. Perhaps that had some influence on Brown, but this is that's a supposition. The lines from Richard II that are, are, are relevant are, many a time hath banished Norfolk fought against black pagans, Turks and Saracens, and toiled with works of war, retired himself to Italy, and there at Venice gave his body to that pleasant country's earth. A 17th century description of a memorial in stone to the Duke on the walls of the Palazzo Ducale in Venice, featuring the Duke's arms, existed, but Brown could find no trace of the carving itself. Then a stonemason in his employ, working on the Cardario, the palace on the Grand Canal, which Brown owned between 1838 and 1842, told him that he had hidden the memorial from the partisans of the French Revolution, who had wished to have it defaced. When the French uh, took Venice in 1797, quite a lot of monuments associated with the aristocracy were defaced or demolished. This particular mason had placed the memorial upside down in the paving of a terrace in the Palazzo Ducale, Brown commissioned the man to make an identical slab, 
and replaced it one night for the Mowbray Memorial. This he had smuggled back to England to an antiquarian friend, Henry Howard, who placed it in Corby Castle, Cumbria, once a Mowbray seat where it still is, but very difficult to see. Brown himself published a description and interpretation of the Mowbray Memorial and later confessed what he had done to the Venetian authorities, presenting them with a plaster cast he had made to replace it, which again, I am afraid, I have not been able to see in Venice. However, it would be a mistake to see Brown as some kind of exile. As he told Charles Eriot Knowlton, I never wake up in the morning, but I thank God that he has lent, let me spend my days in Venice. And sometimes of an evening, when I go to the Piazzetta, I'm afraid to shut my eyes, lest when I open them, I should find it has all been a dream. Commentators, and eventually obituarists, agreed that Brown had adopted Venice as his second patria. He became an enthusiast for Venice and its history, Turning a blind eye to his quest for the Mowbray inscription was the Abate Pietro Bettini, the good old librarian of the Biblioteca di San Marco, the Marciana, then situated in the Palazzo Ducale. And this introduces the point that from his arrival in Venice, Brown appears to have devoted himself to the study of its history. From the 1830s, he bought Venetian manuscripts, works of art and objets d'art, so that the descriptions we have, the various properties he owned or rented on the Grand Canal, likened his rooms to a museum or treasure trove. He worked in the Marciana Library, later acknowledging the kindness shown him there from his arrival in Venice in 1833. He also worked in the Museo Correr, and was familiar with at least some of the libraries of the Venetian mainland, certainly Padua and Verona. And he established friendships with uh, library directors in Venice and elsewhere, and with other Anglophone and foreign historians interested in the history of Venice and research in its libraries and archive. Now, access to the state archives in the Frari in Venice was at first denied to Brown, despite the intervention of the Foreign Office. This was possibly because the Austrian authorities had an obsession with secrecy and were wary of a foreigner, even one sympathetic to the regime, or possibly because Brown was a Protestant and some of his early interests concerned, as it were, the period of what we'd call the Counter-Reformation. However, a change of director afforded him entry from the spring of 1850, though he still encountered difficulties when requesting and studying material, and his access to and use of documents could be strictly vetted, at least initially, by the archival authorities. Now, his research resulted in a number of important pioneering document-based publications. M some of these are devoted to the work of an extremely important Venetian historian and diarist from the late 15th century to the 16th century, Marino Sanudo.
And Sunuro, because of the breadth of his interest and the breadth of the diaries he compiled from the late uh, 15th century into the 16th century, convinced Brown that this was a major source, not just for the history of Venice, but for the history of Italy and Europe as a whole. And this is something Brown championed throughout his career, comes up again and again in his correspondence. He was also very impressed by the range of Venetian diplomacy. Now, Venice, of course, had, was a major Italian power, but its relative position on the European stage began to sink in the 16th century. And in a sense, to compensate for that in part, its diplomatic service increased. And the dispatches of its ambassadors Brown, he was not the only one to identify, or identify this. The dispatches of the ambassadors are incre incredibly detailed and cover much of Europe. And Brown again emphasized the importance of this diplomatic record, not just for the study of Venice or individual Venetian ambassadors, but for the history of Europe as a whole. And one of his publications uh, touch, more than touches on this, four years at the court of Henry VIII. And this is a translation of the dispatches of the Venetian ambassador Sebastiano Giustinian at the court of Henry VIII, covering the period 1515 to 1519. Even more substantial was his calendar of state papers Venetian, on which he began to work for the British government in 1862. The first volume covers the period 1202 to 1509 and appeared in 1864. Its introduction included a highly effective description of the Venetian archives and the government that had produced them. This was one of the first published descriptions of these archives and its appearance and detail and presumably the prestigious circumstances of the connection with the master of the rolls in Britain prompted a group of Venetian scholars to produce an Italian version in 1865. With Brown, there then followed four further volumes, and the project continued long after his death, death with later, later editors, notably Horatio Brown, who was no relation, drawing heavily on material identif identified by Rawdon Brown and by his various Venetian archival assistants. In fact, Shane Mitchell, who has worked on the uh, Brown archives in the uh, uh, National Archives, concludes that most of the subsequent volumes were in fact the material was identified by Rawdon Brown's helpers, though this is not often acknowledged by later editors. Now, this introduces the point that his published work is only the tip of an iceberg to Rawdon Brown's research and output. Much of the material he gathered and prepared for publication went unpublished, though often not for trying on his part. And this material has ended up in the Brown archives here at Kew. And I'd like to uh, turn to this now. 
In Venice, Brown became a point of contact for many other visiting scholars, collectors, tourists. Undoubtedly, the most famous nowadays was John Ruskin. They first met in 1849. Brown was initially wary of Ruskin, observing quite shrewdly, I think, that his dogmatizing, when not ludicrous, is offensive. And the critical tone may be in part due to the fact that Brown had become smitten by the wronged but manipulative wife of John Ruskin, Effie Ruskin, who, who um, uh, Roland Brown refers to as Fifi in his correspondence. Later, however, Brown's association with Ruskin developed, and although their friendship went through some rocky patches, the help he gave Ruskin in Venice was considerable. Companionship, proofreading, hospitality, books and archival information, contacts and assistance. And despite the ongoing boom in Ruskin studies, Rawdon Brown's contribution to his friend's work, I don't believe, has been fully explored or properly recognized. After Brown's death, Queen Victoria's son, Prince Leopold, Duke of Albany, who himself had benefited from Brown's guidance in Venice and regarded, had come to regard him as a close friend, wrote to Ruskin in October 1883 of their great and mutual loss, literally a stone of Venice gone. This possibly subtly recognized the debt the author of the Stones of Venice owed to Brown more fully than Ruskin himself acknowledged in print or in public. Though in his correspondence to Brown, Ruskin could be very friendly, referring to Brown as Papa, and signing himself off as your loving and grateful son, Filio. And in a late letter of February 1881, Ruskin rejoiced that Brown was still king of Venice. But there were many others who benefited from his hospitality, connections, and general local knowledge. And these connections, again, are preserved in correspondence in the archives here. One such was the British politician, diplomat, archaeologist, art collector, connoisseur, and entrepreneur, Henry Austin Layard. And he may have been one of the people who helped to secure for Brown the commission to calendar documents relating to Britain in the Venetian archives. And the relationship was certainly close. For example, Brown seems to have given Layard advice in connection with the glass and mosaic company he had established in Venice in 1868. He also looked for accommodation in Venice for Layard and his wife Enid. And his efforts may have led to Layard's purchase of the Car Capello in 1883, which became the center of Brit the British community in Venice. A large number of letters from Brown to Layard survive, and amongst much else, they give a great deal of information on the society that moved through Venice in the 1860s and 1870s. That society, one suspects, was often indebted to Brown's local knowledge and his role as a Venetian cicerone and Mr. Fixit. 
For example, visiting painter Frederick Walker recorded in 1868 Brown's advice not to go out painting in a gondola without an umbrella to keep off the sun. Lady Eastlake referred to Brown as the Doge of Venice. In fact, Brown was, became embarrassed by the number of people who wrote to him as the Doge of Venice and had to ask them to stop doing this because it was, as it were, offensive to the <laughs> postal system. And a corollary of these social contacts in Venice was a wide network of correspondence. Brown was an active and punctilious letter writer, and although he ordered that his correspondence be destroyed on his death, enough survives here, for example, to throw considerable light on his character, his interests, and his circle. However, Brown could also evidently be a rather touchy, moody, and difficult companion in correspondence, especially in later life. As Ruskin observed, he could appear more at ease with the society of the past than the present. One individual who certainly encountered his difficult side was a redoubtable travel writer, historian, and inhabitant of Florence, Janet Ross. In her book of reminiscences, The Fourth Generation, she records meeting Brown while in the company of Layard in the Piazza San Marco, probably in 1866. She had heard that Brown was eccentric and not easy to make friends with. Indeed, he initially ignored her, but he then softened and invited Janet to his home, showing her his collection of longies and helping her prepare an article for the Nath Athenaeum on Venetian festivals. They then began a correspondence in which Brown displayed what Layard called his retrograde leanings, conservative point of view, especially regarding the new Italy. Uh, but he was also prepared to share with uh, Janet Brown information, sorry, uh, Janet Ross information uh, from his vast store of Venetian knowledge. For example, on the 22nd of November, 1867, he told Janet Ross of his friend Armand Bachet's discovery of the interrogation by the Inquisition in 1573 of Veronese's interpretation of the Last Supper. And he invited Janet to Venice in the spring of 1868, and then things went wrong. She accepted this invitation quote, with great delight, and remembering that he had once told me something about being obliged to hire a big bath for a lady guest, added an unfortunate postscript to my letter to ask whether I should bring my traveling ba bath with me. This nearly upset our friendship. In reply, I received a cold and sarcastic note to say that as evidently I did not consider his house properly furnished, I had better not come. Humbly I asked pardon and announced that I intended leaving Florence the day after he received my note, unless he hardened his heart and telegraphed to say I was not to come. So she was quite as tough as Rodden Brown, I think. The dear old man met me at the station, kind, but rather more ceremonious in manner than usual. 
and when he ushered me into my bedroom, I found it filled with bars of every shape and size. And then she describes a whole range of bars that Rodden Brown had brought in and put in her room. I only had to time to say, Oh, Mr. Brown, when he turned to his nice maid and in a louder voice than was usual to him said, Justina, these bars must be filled with hot water for the lady every morning. Then we went to supper, and it was not until I declared I should not go to bed and should leave by the first train next morning that Mr. Rodden Brown relented. But the bars remained piled together in my room for two days, as I suppose a sort of punishment for my impudence in daring to imagine he did not possess them. When the bath episode, as we called it, was over, he was the most delightful of hosts, and I learned more about old Venice during my week's visit than a whole library of books could have taught me. A letter collection in the National Library of Scotland reveals an earlier associate and beneficiary of Brown's knowledge of old Venice, James Denniston. Denniston himself was a remarkable figure a pioneering collector of early Renaissance Italian art and the historian of the Dukes of Urbino. His memoirs of the Dukes of Urbino, covering the period from 1440 to 1630, was first published in 1851 and remains an authoritative, unsurpassed study of the Montefeltro and Della Rovere dynasties that ruled the state. Deniston did a great deal of original research in libraries in Rome, Florence, and the marches of Italy. He had not, however, visited Venice, but he did turn to Brown for help. This Brown was prepared to give, being particularly anxious that Deniston draw on Senudo's diaries and Venetian diplomatic reports, in particular, the letter books of a Venetian nobleman called Marco Migno, who was the Republic's ambassador at the court of Leo X from 1517 to 1521. Now the latter, this Migno source, which is held here, was a source that Brown felt particularly attached to. He had bought the manuscripts in 1837 and the palace in which he rented rooms from 1852 until his death, he believed to have been once owned by the family. He described the minio material as a passion, yet he was generous enough to either lend Deniston the originals or send him translations in three volumes of manuscript. When the memoirs were published in 1851, Brown was delighted to receive a complimentary copy and was pleased that the author had acknowledged his help and had used some of his source material. However, typically, perhaps rather tactlessly, Brown thought Deniston should draw further on Venetian material for a second edition, especially since the archives in Venice were now open and he urged his Scottish correspondent to visit. Possibly Deniston thought he was being somewhat pressurized. In 1851, he wrote to a friend, Rawdon Brown provokes me much to take a, six, a month or six weeks of the Venetian archives under his direction, and that we, 
Dennis and his wife Isabel, whose personal interest in Venetian lace manufacture Brown played on in the correspondence urging them to come to Venice. Whether we uh, are able to come considering whether the fatigue, fleas, mosquitoes, and heats are sufficient to daunt us. Could we start now and be out of Venice northwards by the 15th of June? It would be perfect. Now from Isabel Denniston's travel journal, it appears that the Denistons arrived in Venice on the 30th of May, 1851. Although Brown was expecting them the following day, they, quote, gondolaed to his house and met with a most kind welcome. He gave us quite a dinner at two o'clock and another one at 7.30. Brown put them up overnight before finding them a flat on the floor above his own uh, his own apartment on the Grand Canal. However, plans for archival research and a second edition of the memoirs enriched with evidence from Venetian sources were dashed. Possibly too keen to follow Brown's example and bathe off the Lido, Brown was famous for rowing himself out to the Lido of Venice on a daily basis. Denniston fell ill and was confined to bed, where Brown was a frequent visitor, read to, reading to his patient. Uh, Denniston recovered by June, but his doctor in Venice advised him to head north rather than into the Venetian archives. And in the National Library of Edinburgh, it's a rather sad thing, there's a, a jotter, it's an exercise book where Denniston clearly begins his work in the Venetian archives but it only runs to about a page and a quarter. Uh, he clearly didn't sustain this. Another theme to emerge from Brown's correspondence with Denniston was the hope that the latter would find a publisher for Brown's translations of Venetian material. Earlier, his friendship with Effie and John Ruskin had helped secure the publication of the Justiniana dispatches from London. Now Brown was hoping for a publisher for Venetian ambassadorial reports from the Milanese court of Lodovico Sforza at the end of the 15th century and from Commonwealth England in the middle of the 17th century. Denniston appears to have tried to help, but calculations over the cost of this, these enterprises deterred publishers including an old school friend of Brown's, John Murray. The Commonwealth reports, which are now here, would have apparently run to 1,068 pages, even if printed in double columns. And the material being offered by Brown was regarded as too specialist, better suited to a learned society like the Roxburgh Club than uh, to a commercial publisher. And this points to a judgment on Brown of which he himself was aware, that he was more of an antiquarian than a historian. It's easy to see the grounds for this criticism, at least in his earlier research in Venice, his obsessive search for the Mowbray Memorial, his publication in 1851 of Anglo-Venetian memorials, reproductions of documents, seals, 
and signatures relating to England that he'd found in the Venetian archives. His rather anecdotal approach to Sanudo's diaries and his sensitivity on this issue comes out in occasional self-deprecatory or self-mocking comments in his correspondence. For example, he, he talks of sending Deniston a sample brick of material and describes himself as grubbing in the archives or ferreting in the archives. But Brown could also defend his approach to the past. To his German friend, von Reumont, he would claim that history without anecdote was not only arid, but lacking. In a letter to Layard, he criticized Carlyle's dismissal of our historical rubbish records, the use of archival records in the writing of history. In one of the letter books of the Venetian ambassador to the court of Leo X, Marco Minio, he inserted a quotation from Henry Ellis, the author of Original Letters Illustrative of English History of 1824. The passage that pleased Brown was one that criticized those writers who were more concerned with the philosophies of history than with its real source materials. In a letter to James Dennison of 29th January 1851, he wrote, if an unvarnished history of the courts of Europe from the end of the 15th century to the end of the 18th century were desired, I'm convinced it could be afforded by the correspondence of the Venetian ambassadors. And I maintain that their letters would be entitled to rank as history rather than as antiquarian research. Brown's position here, his preference for the accurately rendered small canvas over the flawed big picture, emerges again in what I take to be in a draft of an article critical of the great Leopold von Ranke's, Ranke's History of the Popes and preserved in a box of miscellaneous papers here, uh, PRO 3025-70. He had spotted a reference to Minio in the 1838 French edition of Ranke's work, reporting on entertainments at the court of Leo X in 1517. Brown pointed out that Minio had not written the report, but the source was in fact a letter written by a young Venetian nobleman, Tommaso Lipomano, and copied by Sinudo in his diaries. Brown took the ger great German historian to task, not only for confusing and misunderstanding his source material, but also for failing to make the most of the Lipomano letter, which Ranke had only cited in part, for the insights it could give to the political, social, and cultural life of the papal court at the time. But the view that Brown was more of an antiquarian than a historian persisted. It possibly led him falling out with the Venetian historian Bartolomeo Cicchetti, who referred to Brown as a collector. Though Brown's account of the Venetian archives had prompted Cicchetti to produce one of his own. Brown's assiduousness in gathering documents for the calendars 
may well have provoked a degree of weariness at the public record office, though his material was never rejected. A dogmatic or blinkered interpretation of evidence found in Venice soured his relations with his long-standing German friend von Reumann and may have contributed to his increasing isolation towards the end of his life. Although he had championed the cause of publishing Sinuno's diaries and had organized a placing a plaque on the diarist's own house, he was not part of the team set up in 1879 to carry out this task. Nor did Brown publish in any of the journals or series that sprang up following Venice's union with Italy, despite the fact that they were largely devoted to the publication of archival material, one of the journals being Archivio Veneto, the use of the word archivio, the use of the publication of archival material is very significant at this time. But Brown was a veteran of the archives at this stage, and I would not like to end on a negative note. The editors of Sanudo's diaries duly recognized Brown's pioneering recognition of the value of that source. The deputy keeper of the public records office, Thomas Duffus Hardy, paid fulsome tribute to Brown in his report to the Right Honourable Master of the Rolls on the documents in the archives and public libraries of Venice, published in 1866. Brown was admitted to the learned societies of Venice, like the Ateneo Veneto, which on his death paid tribute to questo illustro inglese, who had honored our country and is among its Sochi, its member, its Sochi Pucari, its most dear members. His death in 1883 was also followed by warm, if balanced, tributes from Cecchetti and von Reumann. Von Reumann's uh, obituary in the Archivio Storico Italiano being particularly revealing, while paying tribute to Brown's hard work and care in interpreting archival, arch archival materials. Cecchetti agreed, referring to the exemplary honesty and conscientiousness of Brown, and he also delivered the funeral relation when Brown was buried, draped in the Venetian flag in the Recinto Evangelico on the funeral island of San Michele. And Robert Brown wrote a sonnet on his death. Brown's quite imposing, once neglected, gravestone can still be seen on San Michele. But typically, Brown had always wanted to be buried in the historic Protestant cemetery on the Lido, where he had bought a plot in 1867, a plot which he had frequently visited. But the Venetian authorities ignored his request. However, appropriately, a plaque to the memory of this gentle uomo inglese was placed in the Venetian archives. It paid tribute to his work for the British government on the records of Anglo-Venetian relations. In his own publications, he had drawn attention to the importance of Sanudo and had anticipated the publication of Sanudo's diaries. Now, Lady Frances Clark may correct me here, but when I last saw it, that plaque 
was situated in what today is little, little better than a broom cupboard in the state archives in Venice. But I hope what I've been able to suggest is that it's time for Brown's reputation as a historian and archivist uh, to be revalued upwards and more attention to be paid to uh, what he uh, achieved in the study of the history of Venice and the history of Europe. And to conclude, I'd just like to say something briefly about what is here in the National Archives. Now, as I mentioned early on, the archives that, that Rodden Brown left on his death passed to the PRO, now the National Archives, and are found under PRO 30 stroke 25 and PRO 31 stroke 14. It consists of 205 files or volumes for which there are summary lists or descriptions. Much of the material relates to Brown's calendars. And the published calendars now represent 38 volumes, which, until librarians get hold of them, are held in most serious university libraries in the country, along with other record series. Brown edited five of these, but as I mentioned, Shane Mitchell Agree, uh, uh, decided that most of the rest of the material uh, published by other editors had been identified by Rodden Brown. But his archive also has a miscellaneous character to it, which in some ways is more interesting. Lots of incidental material. Although he requested that his correspondence be burnt on his death, there are letters and even what he claimed to be a contemporary Venetian portrait of Shakespeare, which I once tried to persuade the National Portrait Gallery to look at, but they probably couldn't find their way to Kew. There is also a great deal of material relating to the calendars themselves and the backup to Brown's research on them. For example, as I mentioned, Brown owned the letter books of Marco Minio, the Venetian ambassador to the court of Leo, Leo X, covering 1517 to 1520. And these amount to 484 letters written by Minio's secretary to the Venetian government. He also owned the formal Venetian ducale, ducal letters, written by the Venetian government to Minio in Rome, giving him instructions. Also in the, uh, in, in, in the archives here are three volumes of transcriptions bound in red of these dispatches, matching in green three volumes of translation from these letters. Someone at the Public Record Office noted on the first volume of Brown's translations that these dispatches, quote, be w will be one for future historians, English historians of the Roman pontiff to value. And I think that observation was quite correct, but almost an understatement of their value. 
And now I'd like, by way of final, final conclusion, uh, to suggest ways in which this archive could be studied and developed further. I think it would be very useful to follow up on Shane Mitchell's careful, detailed analysis of the Brown archive here. She covered about a third of it when she had finance. And it's quite revealing what she discovered, and I think this be worth continuing. I think it would also be worthwhile identifying other deposits, related deposits of material relating to Brown and his circle in Venice and through Venice. All the vast amount of literature that's coming up now on Millet, Ruskin, Layard, Eastlake, the collectors and, and uh, um, of the 19th century and historians of the 19th century, a lot of them mention Brown in the footnotes, but he's always regarded as a footnote rather than somebody who's making a major contribution. I think it would also be very valuable to explore, perhaps through a conference, the interest developing in the that developed in the 19th century in the value of foreign archives and foreign sources for national history. Uh, my colleague Ralph Griffiths said that this was a project that an association of European archivists might be interested in. And related, through a conference again perhaps, the value of Venetian diplomatic material for the study of the history of Europe and beyond in the late medieval, early modern period. And one has to remember that Venice at this time was not the, in inverted commas, insignificant tourist city that has now become, but a major Italian and European power, and the range of its diplomacy was extremely wide. So I put these in as pleas for the future. Thank you for your attention. This talk was recorded on the 17th of January 2013 at the National Archives, Kew.